Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Primary season really shapes the future of the parties. And, you know, adding up what type of candidates from these parties are winning all these little races around the country, especially in the House, uh, can really let you almost look into a crystal ball at like what the future of that party is going to look like. I'm Annie Reese, and this is Politico Dispatch. We've been having primaries every week. I'm going a little crazy here. And this is Scott Bland, national politics editor. Uh, which means I'm covering anything and everything to do with elections. And sometime fortune teller. During primary season, you get these these kind of below-the-radar trends building in these safe blue or safe red districts and states that shape the party for years to come. They decide the people who, who are going to be in Congress for years because they represent safe seats. On the show today, trying to identify some of those trends and picking Scott's brain about the biggest questions he wants to see answered in tonight's races. You know, the biggest question of this week. Broadly speaking, I think Georgia represents one of the biggest bets that Donald Trump has made of the midterms. Mm. Um, You know, going after the Republicans who voted to impeach him um, has been a big one. And then going after Georgia Governor Brian Kemp for what he saw as an act of supreme disloyalty for not subverting the results of the 2020 election. Um, has been kind of his other big project. And that is not going well. Uh, it looks like Kemp is on track to win renomination quite handily. Um, you know, there's some other stuff going on in Georgia, too. Trump has endorsed candidates for kind of I think most or, or all the statewide offices mm-hmm. against the sitting AG, against the sitting Secretary of State, right? Another bit of his drive to control election offices around the country, especially in battlegrounds. But Kemp thriving despite Trump flaming him online, yeah. endorsing and recruiting his primary challenger is a big deal. And so, you know, I have, I have several kind of questions from that big question of like, what happens next? Do Trump Republicans rally back around Kemp, again, assuming he wins the primary and goes into the general election to face Stacey Abrams? Mm-hmm. That's a big one. And then also kind of what does this mean more broadly about Trump's power over the Republican Party, which is still significant? We yeah. We know that he can still do a lot to influence primaries and influence who's elected. But notably, we have seen him struggling to have the same impact in governor's races and state state races that he has at the federal level. Two weeks ago, Trump's pick lost the Nebraska gubernatorial primary. Mm-hmm. Last week, Trump's pick lost the Idaho gubernatorial primary. And this week, uh, David Perdue, his pick is a massive, massive underdog in Georgia. And so, you know, there's something to say there about the, you know, the kind of the particular power and pull that governors have. Yeah, versus the Senate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they've got like a lot of levers of state power at their disposal. And also, you know, it's, I think it's just harder for, for him to to come in and beat his chest and do away with entrenched office holders the way that we saw him do with some some sitting senators in 2018, right? Jeff Flake and Bob Corker feuded with Trump and didn't even bother running for Mm re-election. Clearly, the dynamic is different. Okay, so what's another big question on your mind? Ooh, another big question on my mind. Okay, so after after Georgia, if it wasn't for Georgia, you know, the biggest race that we might be paying attention to this week is in South Texas. Mm. And you've got, I think, fair to say, the last anti-abortion rights 
Democrat in the House of Representatives, Henry Cuellar, up against a progressive primary challenger in his district in South Texas. And uh, arguably, the timing could not be worse Mm -hmm. for Cuellar to be that in a primary right now with... In light uh, of Roe. Exactly, with abortion gaining so much salience as like a national political issue over the last month. And, you know, there, there are some legitimate questions about this is not your typical, like, Biden plus eight district. There's a lot of conservative Catholic Latinos there. Democrats who, like Cuellar, don't support abortion. Mm-hmm. But it's still clearly a live issue in the in the Democratic primary. And you, you can see it in the advertising that's running on both sides. Cuellar and his challenger, Jessica Cisneros, have faced each other twice before, basically. They were ran very close to each other in the March primary, which is how we ended up in this May runoff. And in 2020, they had another primary that ended very, very close with Cuellar narrowly winning. And so... You know, if Cisneros is able to beat him, I would think it wouldn't be by all that much. Um, Mm. And I think you could very credibly make the argument at that point that the fact that our our colleagues at Politico reported this draft Supreme Court opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, and that's become such just a rising issue in the midterms, like potentially made a big difference in this race. And then that that kind of raises for me the question of like, where else do you go on the map over the primaries and into the general election where abortion could make a big difference. It's a really fluid and fascinating political situation. Are there any endorsement surprises there? I know that Speaker Nancy Pelosi tends to support incumbents, which he is, but he's also the only not pro-choice Democrat, as you said. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a totally fascinating uh, dynamic, right? Our colleagues, Ali Mutnick and Sarah Ferris wrote a story about this Mm -hmm. um, on Monday. Got House Democrats rallying on the steps of the Capitol, talking about how they're going to do everything they can to fight for abortion rights this way and this way and that way and this way. Mm-hmm. Except <laughs> there's one way. They won't do that, right? That's the song. Mm-hmm. Only five, I guess now six since the story came out, out of 220-some have endorsed Jessica Cisneros, Cuellar's challenger. Mm-hmm. And and like you mentioned, you've got Nancy Pelosi, you've got uh, Jim Clyburn, you've got House leadership lined up with Cuellar. And it drives progressives nuts, or some progressives, I should say, mm-hmm. especially ones who are not in Congress. It drives them nuts because, you know, how do you hold these two ideas together? They're diametrically opposed. If you're doing everything you can to fight for abortion rights, then purifying your party of, of an outlier there um, kind of fits in. But this really gets into, like, members of Congress feel very strongly about, you know, kind of some of the institutional norms there. And one of them is that you don't endorse against colleagues in their primaries that you support incumbents and that like everything is kind of set up to support incumbents Mm -hmm. but you even get this weird situation where some members who endorsed against the other anti-abortion democrat in the house who lost his primary in 2020 said they didn't want to get involved in this one and the one big difference i can think of between this race and that previous race is that this District in South Texas is a potential battleground. Mm. You know, I think there's probably some concern among some people that nominating a progressive candidate there as opposed to like a self-described moderate in Cuellar could potentially cause trouble in November. I think it's probably likely to be a battleground race either way. And so, you know, but you're you're talking about levels of degrees and I don't know what kind of internal polling they they may or may not have. But that's that's the thing that sticks out in my head thinking about the map and where these primaries sometimes turn up. And Cisneros challenged Cuellar in 2020 as well, and lost narrowly, like I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And since then, 
Donald Trump did much better and Joe Biden did much worse than anyone was expecting in those districts. And then previous presidential nominees had done in the past. It used to be kind of like a a, a double digit, solid double digit Republican district. And I think it was Biden plus eight or something like that in 2020, you know, as part of this like broader thing that we saw in South Texas and in heavily Latino areas generally of of Republicans making big inroads in, in 2020, not necessarily winning them, right? still Biden plus eight, but making big inroads from where they were previously. And they're hoping to kind of take that a step forward again in 2022. Okay, moving on to member versus member elections, which is when sitting members are redistricted into the same district. And I know these are some of your favorites to follow based on our previous conversations. So are there any member versus member races that you are particularly watching? There are, you know, let's turn around our our metaphorical plane and and fly back to Georgia um, because (laughs) uh, you've got two Democrats who got drawn into the same district in the Atlanta area. Lucy McBath, who flipped her seat in 2018, and then Carolyn Bordeaux, who flipped her seat in 2020. And Republicans redrawing the maps in Georgia this year took a look at those and said, all right, let's squish every Democrat possible from those two districts into one district um, Mm -hmm. so that we can win the other one. And so as a result of that, gerrymander, McBath and Bordeaux are running against each other. You you mentioned that I really like these races. They usually get crazy and weird and, and often nasty because you, you get people from the same party running against each other. And often, you know, there's not all that much actually separating them in terms of mm-hmm. ideology. Sometimes there is, but but often there isn't. And so so then because, you know, you can't really like draw clear dividing lines that way. It just gets really personally nasty. Um, oh, yeah. And honestly, we haven't really seen that here. This one has kind of just like flown under the radar for any number of reasons, I guess. But one of them is because, you know, I think McBath is seen as as a much more promising rising star by a number of kind of well-funded Democratic groups and, and powerful Democrats. And um, they've just thrown in a lot behind her and kind of tried to make this primary a non-event in her favor. Michael Bloomberg's super PAC, this new kind of crypto-funded uh, pandemic-focused super PAC, mm-hmm. any, any number of things, and so and so that you know they, they've they really just tried to kind of like make this primary into a non-event in McBath's favor. Uh, it, you know, definitely not nearly the fireworks we saw in West Virginia. Despite all that, I just I'm always so fascinated in watching these. They're real. They're real like hinge points in in Congress going forward. You know about like what which personality is going to be there and not going to be there, and so. All right. Final thoughts. Are there any other things that people should be really watching out for any surprises or upsets that you're really on the lookout for this week? Yeah, we talked about kind of the main incumbents who are in jeopardy. I think it is worth uh, keeping an eye on Arkansas Senator John Bozeman is facing a pretty well-funded primary challenge. Mm. There's some indications he has it under control, but you never know. Primaries are unpredictable. We'll see. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the open Senate race in Alabama, which uh, has been pretty wild. And that's that's probably going to a runoff, but there's a question of which two of the three Republicans who are competing there are going to get in. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump famously revoked his endorsement of Congressman Mo Brooks for, for going woke, uh-huh. in his words, i.e. saying that the GOP should focus more on 2022 and 2024 then looking back at the 20, 2020 election very woke yeah uh i mean you know there, there's there's a handful of, of other things uh george p bush is you know in dire straits the 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 latest scion of the the bush dynasty in texas mm-hmm. running for attorney general against the sitting ag uh seems seems to not be going too well oh man i'm sure i'm forgetting something there's so much stuff every week i'm amazed you can keep it all in your head <laughs> well I, I i had a large tea this morning so i'm flying If I stop talking, you'll be able to hear my teeth chattering. Scott Bland, thank you so much for talking with me. 
Thank you for having me. Great to be on Dispatch. Also in the news, on Monday, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine announced that he is suing Mark Zuckerberg, Meta's CEO, for failing to protect Facebook users during the Cambridge Analytica privacy scandal. Zuckerberg so far has avoided facing personal legal repercussions in various Facebook scandals, but this suit could result in fines against Zuckerberg himself. And Pfizer and BioNTech announced their plans to submit data to the FDA for three doses of their COVID-19 vaccine for children between six months and five years old. They report an 80% efficacy for the three doses. About 19 million children in the United States are in this age group, none of whom are currently eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.